0: Walk around the garden, we'd noticed that certain plants were, were being eaten, and we we knew at the time that we the garden had become a sanctuary for bandicoots, and uh, they were they were non-existent in the area, and now they seem to be totally um, concentrated in on our property simply because it's uh, so protected by the fences, as well as um, um, moist over the summer. So, we well, put it down to bandicoots, and then we noticed that the leaves are very high up the tree up the up the plant, not trees, probably a metre high outside so so what are the bandicoots climbing up there or something uh we couldn't work it out we couldn't work out what was eating these things and i came home one day and there was this uh, kangaroo sleeping in the shade
1: welcome to thriving the future podcast where we're finding positive solutions to thrive in the tough times ahead Welcome back to Thrive in the Future. In this episode, I talk with Shudra on how he is thriving in Australia. Shudra is one of the contributors at the Homestead Journal, thehomesteadjournal.net. And you can follow Shudra on Twitter at TheShudraWay. Let's jump into the episode. So Shudra, what part of Australia are you in and what kind of setup do you
0: have down there? Um, I'm in the Western part, Western Australia, which is that state takes up a third of the entire country. So it's quite big. Um. About an hour out of Perth, which is uh, the capital, mm-hmm. uh, up in the hills. Um, got ten acres in Jarrah forest, which is the predominant tree species in the area. the eucalypt. Okay. Um, very good hardwood for um, fine timbers and burns well. And they also used it for cobblestones, or used it for cobblestones in um, England, hundred uh, at least a hundred years ago. Which are still in use today. So it's quite a very good. It's a very good hardwood. Good. Uh, so yeah, um, ten acres. Uh, it was all. It was all um, woodland when I got it. Nothing here. So everything I've done. Um, everything that's appeared here is I've done myself.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You were saying that uh, you've got a lot of gravel and you had to build a lot of soil, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's a very dry part of the country. There's um. Leaf litter is almost non-existent. Eucalypts hold onto their leaves well. Mm -hmm. So um, you you don't get thick leaf litter. Like um, in deciduous forests, you'll get all this um, load of leaf litter dump, which will break down over the winter, but that doesn't happen here. They hold their leaves. So, yeah, almost no soil, very thin uh, layer of dirt on top of the gravel. And the gravel is very pure. I actually use the gravel for concrete. So Mm -hmm. it's it's that pure. Um, So... All the soil that's here uh, I've either made or carved in myself.
1: Okay. So how are you building soil down there?
0: Quite a number of ways. Uh, One of the uh, most personal ways I've been building it is uh, uh, recycling the um, dry toilet. I don't have a composting toilet because I I like to make the point that uh, composting toilets don't work. You don't do the composting in the toilet. You receive the contents at the toilet, and then it gets composted elsewhere. Ideally, out in the garden. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a lot of that. Uh, other than that, we've—I um, discovered recently—hay bale gardens, straw bale gardens, um, where basically you, you you put a thin layer of soil on top of um, hay bales and uh, do your vegetables there. They break okay. down over the course of the season, and they they turn into very good soil as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, good.
0: Yeah, and um, the the last one is that I've only just endeavored to take on is using livestock to build soil, which is the least effort on my part and the most effective uh, for large-scale soil production.
1: Mm-hmm. So how much livestock do you have? You mostly have chickens, right?
0: At the moment, mostly chickens. Um, I think last count, um, with the four babies that have just been born, I think we might be up to 34 chickens.
1: Wow, 34.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, we're getting into um, breeding the different uh, breeds of chicken, so we can um, hopefully sell those. Because when I started buying chickens, they were $10 each. Now they're at least $40, and that's just for an egg-laying chicken. If you're going to have nice, um, pretty chickens, it it goes up from $40. So definitely a good market to get into at this point in time.
1: Okay, so you'll start uh, hatching the eggs and and then selling them, right?
0: Yeah. at the moment we're just using broody hens to hatch the eggs and mm-hmm. um that's been good probably getting at best a fifty percent uh hatch rate on that um my next step will be to buy a uh an incubator and um step up the uh the success rate of the hatchings because yeah nature nature's good but it it does have a high uh, failure rate mm-hmm
1: I really like your humanure strategy. Like you said, you have the dry toilet, and then you take the uh the sawdust or whatever else you put in with the manure, and then you mm-hmm. dig a hole for a tree and you put that in there with some mushroom compost, right? Yeah. So do you plant immediately uh, into that or do you let that break down before you plant into it, or what's what's the process?
0: It's not intentional. It really depends on whether I have a tree available or not. If I've got all my buckets filled and I need to do something about getting some free buckets and there's no trees available, I'll make the hole. And the hole will sit there until the tree uh, goes into it. Mm-hmm. Or I've had other occasions where I don't have any free buckets and I've got trees waiting. And so as soon as a buckets finished, uh, that's going into a hole and, and a tree's going immediately on top of it. Um, I've... I've not seen any difference in um, success between the the two ways, whether it's had to mature or whether it's going in fresh. I, I, I find that there's there's, no, there's not enough of a difference between those to worry about uh, which which method I use
1: hmm So how do you make your mushroom compost?
0: Uh, the mushroom compost i, I, I buy, so that's done oh, okay. um, from mushroom farms, yeah, from mushroom farms that's spent compost mm-hmm. So that that's probably the most expensive part of the endeavor. i I, I also mix that in with coffee grounds, sure. uh, which i co- which I collect, which I collect on the way to work, so that's not a special trip, and um they're free because uh, coffee grounds actually take up quite a lot of um bin space of um, cafes when they get rid of them, and they're paying for bin space and bin weight when they when they pay for their um skips mm-hmm. dumpster bins that they that they use. so they're more than happy to get rid of the coffee grounds because that's saving them money on paying for the volume of their bin.
1: So how much do you take home at one time?
0: 265-litre, which is, let's say, 15-gallon um, uh, bins. So I have two of those on the back of the truck when I head in, and I'll, also, and I'll fill both of those, and I'll also have quite a, quite a number, maybe 12 or 13 or 14 um, coffee bags, the ones mm-hmm. that they in their knock boxes and they knock the coffee grounds into so quite quite a bit quite right. and that's once a week yeah so that's once a week and i mix that in 50 50 with the mushroom compost
1: you do 30 gallons a week
0: yeah i'd, I'd say i yep that, that sounds wow. like a, a reasonable number on average
1: do you store those or do you use just, them immediately what do you do
0: they sit there and wait mm-hmm. um it doesn't actually take up that much coffee grounds to um Get the um, mixture for the for the toilet. So the rest, I'll just dump on the ground and mix it in with the soil. I did go through a phase once where I was just dumping the the, the coffee grounds in the chicken yard, and they would scratch around to see what was in there and naturally till it into the soil because um, they, they don't seem to learn that there's nothing in there. <laughs> uh, their natural instinct their natural instinct in to see a fresh mound of of something unknown is to scratch and see what's inside. So, uh, that's that's an easy way of getting it tilled in.
1: So does that get your chickens? Uh, do they get some of the coffee grounds and uh, get kind of a caffeine high off of it, or anything?
0: That, they they don't. No, all they're doing is looking for what's in there, and and that they they till it into the ground. Right. Okay. okay. So that, that that that's another way I've built up the soil as well, just by having the chickens chilling um, coffee grounds.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. I like how you troll people on twitter with if someone's complaining about something or whatever then you use your meme of uh plant trees get out of debt and grow your own food
0: (laughs) i in the end um that's that's all you need to do and uh i think people get caught up in um in the technological life and and when when you're at that stage, any little problem seems to be much larger than it is. But if you if you're doing is planting trees and tending to your livestock, uh, problems disappear and, uh-huh. and life seems so much easier. Yeah, sure. So when you, so when you're chasing the latest model iPhone or the um the, the slightly larger TV screen, that, that's when even the minor inconvenience seems to be a major problem for people.
1: Hmm. So what's your what's your main advice, or your steps to get out of debt?
0: Um, I use the Dave Ramsey Debt Snowball. So I I haven't come up with a a better way of doing it than that. Mm -hmm. The way he does it is you you, uh, rank all your debts from smallest to largest. Any spare cash uh, um, goes into the smallest debt and you just make the minimum payments on the the larger ones and everything gets focused on that smaller debt. And the, the reasoning behind that is that it's a psychological milestone when you when you get rid of that first step so you, You're hitting it. Um, you're getting that first milestone early, and that's encouraging you to go on. Then from there, everything that was being put into that smallest set goes into the next smallest step And you just keep doing that until you've got nothing left of the largest step.
1: Yeah, that's great. So what all kinds of food do you grow down there?
0: Um, I've got aquaponics set up with ebb and flow beds, and that that gives us the bulk of our salad. Uh, so uh, chard, um, all the lettuces, your um, rocket, which is I believe you call a rigola, mm-hmm. um, uh, spring onions or green onions, uh, um, all, all the major salads where you, where you get your uh, nutrients and minerals from, um, they're done in the ebb and flow beds because what we found is on the ground, even on a... Um, a straw bale bed, uh, they will be attacked by other creatures, especially when we've got chickens running loose in the um, garden for rehabilitation. Right. Um, They've they, they torn up our child pretty good. So, but anything in the aquaponics area is, uh, uh, seems to get away unscathed. Other than that, obviously the fruit trees growing in the garden. Uh, we do have some of the more uh, her- perennial herbs um, there in the garden. And obviously eggs from the chickens, which is a very major source of protein for us.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's your uh, what's your favorite fruit trees to grow?
0: Uh, at the moment, the most successful ones are locust, which is odd because they're quite a tropical tree or semi-tropical tree. But um, they seem to be doing just fine here, mm-hmm. uh, which I suppose... Um, you plant everything, and um, you'd be surprised at what does uh, end up being a good a good tree. So I would never have expected locusts to grow here, but here they are. Um, as well as that elderberries, which are do not like the um, or they they don't mind the dry, but they prefer wetter areas. And this isn't a wet area; this is a dry area. And they they seem to be going pretty good here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got our. Named grafted varieties, got apricots, peaches, nectarines, grapes. Grapes grow well. Uh, we use grapes mainly as um, shade canopy. Mm-hmm. So the aquaponics area actually has grapes growing over the top of the roof. So in the middle of summer, when it would be quite um, formidable inside the aquaponics room, the uh, grapes actually make it quite cool and shady. You've got almost full cover over the top of the wow. nose. So that's very, very useful.
1: Growing grape treli- up the trellis and onto the arbor and over the aquaponics, yep. right?
0: Yes. Wow. And we use, and when when I do a partial water change on the aquaponics, um, I've got sprinklers underneath mm-hmm. uh, at the base of the grapes. So the um, water from the aquaponics ponds um, goes to the grapes. Wow. So it's um, feeding itself, which is quite good.
1: So you drain out the aquaponics and then it just goes right to the grapes, right?
0: Uh, It's a partial water chain, so maybe Mm -hmm. 10% of it. I just run the sprinklers for about 10 minutes. I use a um, a bilge pump that Mm -hmm. just goes in. I just dump that into the uh, pond at at, um, the end of the sediment being dragged to. The the, the way I have it set up, um, the circulation pump pulls it, um, pushes from one end to the other. So you've got this very, very slow current that drags all the sediment down to one end. So that's where the bilge pump goes into and just pumps for 10 minutes into the garden, and I top it up again. So the grapes get nutritious um, water, and the, the fish get a little, a little bit of a water change.
1: Right. So you said it's pretty hot down there. What kind of temperature range do you get in the different seasons?
0: Um, in the summer, uh, we're getting up to high thirty-five to um, mid-40s. I suppose it's about the, um, the 100 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow, so it's quite, I, I find it quite comparable. I, I follow um, Jack Spurko's, uh videos on YouTube, mm-hmm. and he, he's in Texas. He's in Texas, and I find um, our summer very comparable to the Texas summer. Right, which is it's manageable, but you'll have those two or three months in the in midsummer where you're not doing anything, and you you wouldn't want to start anything, and all you're doing is focusing on keeping things alive. Sure, but on the other hand. Um, in in Texas, you'll you'll get a frost on in winter, where things will go dead. But here, we will we won't have a frost, and we'll stay quite comfortably above zero for all of winter. So, uh, I suppose the main advantage of where I'm living is that uh, I can I can power through winter, still planting stuff, still ha- actually having stuff growing. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, in in uh, most parts of uh, the US. You put a frost come on and that really slows your plants down and you're, you're not doing too much there.
1: Right. So, do you, do, do you close down the aquaponics in the wintertime or or is it warm not, enough to keep going?
0: Yeah, it, it's definitely warm enough that it does, the aquaponic area doesn't even slow down. Um, our yellow greens go right through winter right. and they have no problem doing that. Wow, that's great. So, we, 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 we're mainly in double digits. Uh, in winter, and occasionally we'll get close to freezing, but never for more than an hour before sunrise, and, and then the sun will come and um, everything gets warmed up again. So, yeah, w- winter's not a problem here. I think that's maybe that's one of the main advantages of where I am. What do you think
1: has been your biggest challenge on your homestead so far?
0: Uh, other than making the soil, I think it, w- it would come down to more... Um, the type of bureaucracy we have in Australia compared to um, the US. I hear about people getting bulk seeds, in like bulk um, radish seeds or bulk carrot seeds or something like that. That concept doesn't exist here. We we don't get bulk seeds. We'll get maybe the um, peas and uh, what else have I bought in bulk? Uh, Lupins, which is a which is a legume. Um, obviously wheat berries, but other than that, um, for us to buy. Five pounds of seeds to um, to broadcast it, it in a bulk thing, or to do mycorrhizae. So that that concept just doesn't happen here. So it's um, individual seeds or um, saving your own. So mm-hmm. that's one that's one challenge I've noticed. Where um, uh, in the US you definitely have an advantage over us but you can you can buy something in 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 bulk for seeds. Whether that that just doesn't happen here. Um, also. Uh, I believe you can mail order chickens or mail order ducks, ducklings, um, <laughs> yeah. hatched, and and they turn up in the mail. That yeah, that could. I I think that comes down to the population density of the US, where um you you'll have several cities in the centre that can do that sort of thing, and and mail to all parts of the country. Right. Whereas we don't we don't have anything in the centre, so we're very much spread along the coastline. So. Sure. You're not going to sh- you're not going to ship a box of chickens from Sydney to here. That's going to take a week, and they're all going to be dead. Whereas right. you do it do it in a day or so in the US, and um, you get yourself a box well, of chickens in the mail.
1: Even when you do that, it's probably like thirty percent of them may not thrive or may upright die. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, it's like rolling the dice. Uh, oh
0: yeah, but uh, the the fact that you could do it and get it. Sixty percent um, success rate is is pretty impressive. That that's right. something that couldn't happen here. Just yeah, I think the, the, neat is, the neat thing is
1: the neat. I haven't done that, but Perpen and some others have done that. And the neat thing is, you can get some different chickens that aren't aren't very uh, available locally, like Brahmas and things. You know, the ones that have the feathers that go all down all the way down to the feet, down to the toes. I've got mm-hmm. a couple like that that I got from my uh, son-in-law. And uh, I think he got those mail order.
0: So here, if you want something exotic, it's got to be close, or you've got to be prepared to go get it. Or there's going to be a lot of um, logistics in getting something exotic into here. Mm -hmm. Um, Which brings me, uh, which um, brings me to another aspect of um, this this, uh, state of Western Australia is they have very strict biosecurity because it's um, it's been listed as one of the most. um, It's got the. Highest concentration of biodiversity anywhere in the world, and of u- unique biodiversity anywhere in the world. Right. So they have very strict um, security, so you you can't just order a packet of seeds from um, from the other side of the country either, because they've got sure. to go through quarantine and mm-hmm. checking. So uh, that that restricts it as well, because there's quite a lot of um, seed companies on the east coast that ship um, regularly ship very um, exotic seeds. Uh, that i'd love to have but on the, every time on their website will be does not ship to wa just, just because of the quarantine issues that they have to go through it's not worth it for them
1: yeah i could see that especially we've got so many invasive things going on that it's like who thought this was a good idea mm-hmm. like all the chestnuts dying off early 1900s yeah. on the east coast still fighting it you think you've got a you think you have a pretty good hybrid and then it'll get going and then it'll have some canker or it'll have some uh blight like Mark Shepard has to do. You have you have to plant mega amounts of it and then uh and then significantly call it. So do you do uh um, any grafting on your trees? Do you do any grafting on your apple and, and uh I mean on your fruit trees?
0: I do not. Uh was it last year? I think it might have been last year or the year before. I I tried my hand at grafting. Uh, for the first time ever and I cut myself pretty badly. I opened my hand up <laughs> that I had to go uh I had to go get uh stitches. Really? Get that stitched up and and I thought to myself, you know what, maybe grafting's not for me. It's, it's not for everyone. And um I uh yeah decided not to do that and it's just far easier to buy a crafted uh, tree and bring it home than yeah. have to learn that that because uh, speaking to other people online about it afterwards and they say, yeah, you're dealing with um, wearing gauntlets, right? Uh, special g- gloves that aren't going to get cut. And I thought, no, nah, you know what, maybe that's not something, not a skill I have to learn.
2: But mm-hmm.
0: yeah, on, on that note, um, I have discovered a species of peach that has um, come up. I think it, maybe it was an ornamental peach that for whatever reason, it um, decided to fruit. And it's quite nice fruit. It's actually a very tasty um, peach. And the seeds will um, grow quite significantly within 18 months. So uh, I started planting these everywhere. Um, They're a sort of a black-colored flesh, and uh, the stone is quite large compared to the rest of the fruit, but they're, they're quite tasty. And because it's so prolific at growing, what I'm doing now is just selecting the ones that have smaller stone and larger fruit. So I'm developing my own providence heirloom peach, which uh, you can grow from seed. So that eliminates the grafting altogether. And you you just don't see heirloom fruit trees uh, that much anymore, especially uh, with the stone fruit. So that's something quite exciting that I'm um, developing.
1: Wow, that's great. I was grafting and and I had to start wearing one of those gauntlet gloves too because I was... The whole process is you cut towards yourself. It's totally non-intuitive. And I was slipping and cutting myself quite a bit. So I wear one of those, uh, gauntlet gloves and then I take it off to wrap the graft. So it's a big pain. I'm not sure if I'm going to do any grafting next year because I had like 30% success this year. That seemed like a big waste of time and money.
0: I, I haven't seen, um, it was posted on the telegram channel. I, uh, Would you call it some sort of press that had a um a die that did the perfect graft Mm -hmm. and it cut uh, on on both sides? So so you just put the um the uh the cutting into the machine, you pull the lever down, which cuts the um a perfect graft, and then you put them together, which was I thought that was quite interesting. So that so that's letting technology take the place of uh, the the dangerous manual work, but it's still. Mm it's still manual technology because it's just a simple hand tool that you're using to cut the die, cut right. the um, cut the graft.
1: Yeah, I bought one of those. So, I haven't, I haven't used it yet. Um, it wasn't quite as clean as what they say. It didn't make a very tight graft joint. So I'll, I'll use it more next year okay. after, after I get a hang of it.
0: Is that due to the? Do you think that would be due to the sharpness of the um, of the die, or just uh, it, the limitations of what they're trying to do with it?
1: Yeah, I think it's the sharpness of the die. And then also when you do a whip and tongue graft, you want it to kind of get in there kind of tight. And uh, this thing makes like a U graft across there. And there's not anything where it's really holding it. It's just got a U, a U shape. I tried tightening it and I I don't wrap very tight. Kansas wind is like 25, 30 miles an hour normally. And it always seems like when I do that, no matter how tight I get it, that particular graph made with that um, hand tool ends up falling apart. It doesn't hold up long-term. So it, I'll try it some more next year okay. and see what happens. So I thought I was really impressed by your um, story of Heath. Can you share how that worked out?
0: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. That was uh, February. I think it was February this year. So we're talking the peak of summer. Mm-hmm. And walk around the garden, we'd notice certain plants were, were being eaten and we, we knew at the time that our, the garden had become a sanctuary for bandicoots and uh, they, were, they were non-existent in the area and now they seem to be totally um, concentrated in, on our property simply because it's uh, so protected by the fences as well as um, um, moist over the summer. So we put it down to bandicoots and then we noticed that the leaves were very high up the tree, up the, up the plant, not tree, probably a metre high outside right. so, so what are the bandicoots climbing up there or something uh we couldn't work it out we couldn't work out what was eating these things and i came home one day and there was this uh kangaroo sleeping in the shade under one of the areas and I was Like, what is going on so i my 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 immediate thing was kangaroos are bad because they they will eat everything so i took it out outside the fence area and it was um really hot that day and it was um it looked quite uh dehydrated well oh i i'll I'll give it some water, and then once it's got its strength back, it'll it'll hop off and do its thing. Next morning, it was uh, when I went out to do my chores. It was standing outside the gate, waiting. I thought, "Oh wow, I've never seen that before." I walked up, opened the gate, and it popped up, popped past me, didn't even didn't even care about me, and went into the garden to get a drink. All right. and so I thought, "Okay, one kangaroo will rehabilitate it, and." Um, Ended on its way, and from there uh, we we grew attached to it. Uh, We found that Heath uh, was only eating grass, wasn't eating any of our um, salads, wasn't eating anything that we we would not have wanted Heath to eat, and so I thought, okay, we we can have a pet kangaroo. And by that, I mean, we totally don't have a pet kangaroo because that's illegal. So we had this kangaroo that um, tolerated us and hung around the play. And fast forward to maybe a week or so ago, when I went outside and I noticed that there was a head sticking out of heat pouch and it was a little joey. <laughs> and we thought, "Oh, we don't have a heath anymore. We have a girl kangaroo." So that, that was quite a shock. And then I started doing some research on kangaroos because I know almost nothing about them, and found out that they can, in times of stress, like its the heat of summer in February, um, they can pause their pregnancy for as long as they need to until times get better again. And then just, uh, hit play again on their, um, on their pregnancy and continue through. So she could have been pregnant for any number of uh, months leading up to summer. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So now we've got a single mother as our, as our companion. That's
1: amazing. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> so now it's Heather, right? So, yeah.
0: Um. No, Heather. Uh, she decided. Uh, Heather's uh, not going to be her first thing. That she's going with Tilda, and uh, we have um, boy and girl names lined up for um, whether Joey, uh-huh. uh, depending on um, and I'm not even sure how long it's going to take us to find out whether um, the Joey is a boy or a girl. So those those names are going to have to wait until we're sure. Right. But but I think it. I think she has come up with a um, boy-girl name like Heath and Heather, so uh-huh. so we'll be okay. We'll be okay either way.
1: So the so the kangaroo didn't hop off yet, huh?
0: Oh, she has no intention of leaving. <laughs> um, uh, with, and at the moment, we're only seeing the Joey sticking his head out of the pouch, So he's very young, and um, hopefully in the coming weeks. Um, She's also keeping her distance too, which is a purely instinctive thing, I would imagine. So she's down in the wild area of the uh, of the house site, um, air quotes there, wild area, and you um, will only occasionally see her coming up to get some wheat. We leave some wheat out for her so she can get some um, get some energy food. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, hopefully once he's out and about and moving around, she'll be more confident to bring him up and introduce him to her.
1: That's great. Cool. Any final thoughts?
0: Um, I guess uh, plant trees, cultivate, uh, garden, and raise livestock. That's that's, that's the only way we're going to get through this. And get out of debt. (laughs) And get out of debt, definitely, yes.
1: Thank you for listening to the Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, click that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast app. Also, check us out at thriveinthefuture.com and join our conversation on Twitter at thriveinthefuture or join our Telegram channel. Simply go to the Thrive in the Future website. On the right sidebar, there's a link to the Telegram channel. This episode was produced by Scott Miller, copyright 2022. Thriveinthefuture.com. Next time on Thrive in the Future Podcast. I talk with A. Mike from Paradise Radio on community comms. We've got real world situations just in the last couple of years where you could theoretically have a complete loss of cell after a couple of days. We had Hurricane Harvey and they had widespread outages of self-coverage. You know, those are examples of just how... Not to mention the grid down, if you had power outage or anything like that, that could affect your communications. Join us at the Homestead Journal in living out the classic homesteading ethos on the path towards a simple life that speaks to the heart of humanity. We're an online community embodying and helping our members develop an indestructible homesteading mindset. Become someone who adds walk to the talk and applies proven old world protocols in a modern context. Find us at thehomesteadjournal.net and follow us at thj.net on Twitter.